0: Not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin.
1: This is Dr. Dan. You know, I like talking about the dawn of civilization. It's a topic you can discuss at length without lots of specific knowledge because. So much of what we know really is speculation. I have yet to find any selfies of prehistoric human beings gathered around the head of a saber-toothed tiger they just killed, and I certainly have not found any YouTube videos of a group of cave folks partying around the lake drinking homemade wine. We do know that early humans were hunter-gatherers. They hunted game and ate plants that grew naturally around them. They had to learn what was safe to eat, and I'm sure there was a whole bunch of trial and error in that process, with the error part probably often being fatal. Unlike the animals around him, early man had no physical tools for protection, such as body hair for insulation, a thick skin, padded feet, or great physical strength. So part of the learning process was designing and fabricating the external tools necessary to survive in a harsh uh, environment. All of these learning experiences formed the foundation for intelligence. Now, we had a brain capable of memory, both short-term and long-term memory, and also logical thought. Although in our time, a significant portion of the American population has lost the ability to use facts and logic to form rational opinions, we all know that. In addition to the human brain, two physical characteristics are responsible for the development of intelligence, keen vision and the opposable thumb. Few animals have a thumb on the opposite side of the hand from the fingers, This gives us the ability to pick up and manipulate objects in our environment. With our keen vision, we can examine them, see fine details, and learn from that experience. When it comes to basic survival, most of us have lost the ability and the desire. To most of us, camping out means being in a motel without a swimming pool workout room and a restaurant. My guest on Freedom Forum Radio is Alan Kay, a local survivalist and survival arts instructor who recently successfully competed and won the television series alone on the History Channel. Alan and his fellow contestants were airlifted into separate, isolated locations in the wilds of the Pacific Northwest, and each contest contestant was allowed to choose 10 items from a list to bring with him. Alan survived for fifty-six days longer than any of the others because of his incredible survival skills. So Alan Kay, welcome to Freedom Forum Radio.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Dennis. Pleasure to be here.
1: Well, Alan Kay, let's let's talk about this. You have you have skills and knowledge way beyond what most of us have. You have skills and knowledge that are incredibly important. Uh, I'm actually in awe of the things that you know, and I know you've been doing it for a long time. So let's start off by talking what are the basic needs for a human survival?
2: Well, the the most basic thing a human needs uh, on the planet is to maintain core temperature. Uh, That's usually what kills people outdoors first is hypothermia. So uh, the ability to create for yourself a shelter, even apart from fire, you know, you should be able to build a shelter that is not fire-dependent uh, and with no tools. That's generally the first skill set that that I recommend people learn. And it's best to do it in the wintertime when it's actually zero degrees. It, it kind of motivates you to build the shelter correctly. And, and if you do it incorrectly, you get instant feedback and you have a sleepless night out there. Uh, Yeah, human life's not really complicated. It's just water, shelter, fire, and food. Those are the basic four things, and we tend to overcomplicate it. You know, we've got smartphones and climate control and vehicles and all of this, but when you boil our needs down to their essence, uh, it's water, shelter, fire, and food. And it seems that modern man has devolved. You know, we were designed to live in our given environment, and we're the only thing in nature that can no longer do that, you know. A bear a uh, hundred years ago and a bear today really isn't uh, any different. They, you can count on them to do what bears do, whereas humans over that hundred-year span look at what, what we've become.
1: Well, there's no question that we have devolved because, as you rightly put it, most of us can no longer actually do the things we need to do. And I would say, Alan, that most of us don't even know those four things, if you ask people, they wouldn't know that those are the four things that they need to survive.
2: Yeah, survival, too, is about uh, kind of like doing a triage. You know, it's uh, it's priorities. It, it's understanding what it is that is likely going to kill you first, and, and that does change from environment to environment. If it's 110 degrees, you know, you're, you're not going to need to build a thermal shelter, but but you are going to need a drink of water, you know, if you're injured, and depending upon the severity of that injury Self-aid might take precedent over everything else.
1: Right, so priorities obviously are important. But in order to choose your priorities, you really have to have an understanding of what those needs are and to be able to relate that to your surroundings.
2: Yeah, you have to have an understanding of physiology and psychology um, in order to survive long-term. Most situations usually... Uh, people get through them or it works itself out within about 72 hours. If you recall the snowstorm in Atlanta, was it two, three years ago, they, people uh, camped in their cars for four days. So, you know, when we leave the house in the morning, most people are under the assumption they're going to come back to that cozy, warm bed, but you may not. And so having, having a little bit of forethought and preparation, I think, is paramount. seems like preparedness is going mainstream these days. And rightly so. If you look at Venezuela right now, if we see Greece, Argentina, all these different things, and even in our own history, there have been periods of turmoil, and uh, people had to live in a very austere environment and provide for themselves as best they could.
1: So when you're looking at survival, and this is what you had to do on the program, how do you start? What do you look at? You're placed in an environment that is unfamiliar to you in specific, maybe not in general terms, but you were placed in an environment that was really unfamiliar to you. What did you do? What did you look at first?
2: Yeah, it it was very unfamiliar to me. And that's, that's really what motivated me to do the project to begin with was I wanted to test myself. I, I wanted to really test myself. And I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the mountains here and, the animals and the plants and in British Columbia, I can only identify about two trees, the hemlock and the cedar and everything else was kind of a mystery. So very much out of my element. So as soon as I got out of the helicopter, my first thought was you're not normal. You need a hobby, maybe golf or something because who does this? (laughs) And then I shook that off and said, all right, get to work. So I went out and started to scout my immediate area. Um, Just kind of taking it all in, looking for potential shelter sites, but before you decide where you're going to put a shelter, especially in a long-term situation, you've got to locate a water source. I typically try to keep my shelter at least 100 yards away from a water source um, just because of insects and the noise of the water can drown out other sounds that you need to be aware of, and it can also put you in some situations with animals sometimes, especially in in a salmon-run type environment where there's, you know, a lot of bear activity. so um, And if you're too far away from the water, then, then the problem becomes you're burning a lot of calories to, to procure your water. So you want to strike that balance. So a general rule is about 100 yards for me. So once I located the water source, then I asked myself, okay, where are your likely resources? Where's your food going to come from, your firewood, your tinder, that type of thing? And I decided pretty early on that in that particular instance, Coastal foraging would be my mainstay. There's really not much for you in the woods during the winter up there. So I decided to put my shelter within line of sight to the coast uh, for a couple reasons. One, it's very dense up there, and we didn't have any compass. We were not allowed to have a compass or a watch or anything that we could use for navigation. So I wanted to use the the shoreline kind of as a handrail, as a reference point. And I wanted a really robust shelter because I knew – I was going to be in there uh, long-term, or at least that was the plan, and that the weather can be pretty inhospitable. So once I locate shelter and water, uh, you're in pretty good shape right there because most of us, especially modern Americans, we've got some time on the food. We're carrying around some reserve, you know. Hmm.
1: Well, that's obviously true. So you had your shelter. Uh, talk to me about the shelter. How do you, how do you build a shelter from nothing with, with nothing? What do you do?
2: Well, the first thing I look for, obviously, what you build the shelter out of will be dictated by your environment. If you're in an open field with, with tall grass and maybe some stones, then you know, you're, you're going to use stones and grass in your shelter because that's what nature offers. Uh, here in, in these mountains, usually uh, you could find a situation where there's a fallen tree, which is what I used in British Columbia. I, on film it almost looks like a cave but it was actually a tree that had fallen and on its side the tree was as high as i am tall and i'm six foot six so it was a, an immense tree the trees up there there's five and six hundred year old cedar trees there are ferns in there as tall as i am it was kind of like jurassic park uh, never it's never been cut for timber and it's still the land there um is still in the custody of the original First Nations people. The name of that uh, tribe is Quatsino, the Quatsino First Nation. And they still control that land. And we had to be given uh, their permission and blessing to go in there. And we had to undertake uh, archaeological studies so that we would be able to identify the remnants of their culture so that we would not damage anything through ignorance, that we would be able to to recognize, you know, okay, this is an old village site or this might be a burial type situation, you know. So we we had to study that, and we were given some training as far as uh, emergency procedures because we were so far out there, like how we would scramble a medevac and things like that.
1: We're talking with Alan Kay, survivalist, winner of Alone on the History Channel, uh, his email, by the way, is alan at com. That's K-A-Y, com. So you were in a kind of a natural – you were in a natural setting. And actually, uh, because of the the native people there, it had been preserved pretty much as the way it was for probably hundreds of years. Uh, did you recognize any anything other than those several kinds of trees and so as you went about realizing that you would forage for food, what did you look for? What were the clues you used to find out what was safe?
2: I had done uh, a little study, not any hands-on study, but I had done some, some reading and things like that about coastal survival, coastal foraging. So I had seen uh, things like limpets, I had never tasted one, and I had seen pictures of the different seaweeds, the ones that are the most common and the most edible, and I had never tasted any of those. And so I, I realized early on that if there was any food to be found, it would be in the intertidal zone, you know, that space between high and low tide. So at low tide, I would go down to feed, as did the other animals. That was that was the pattern there in that, in that forest. And that's what you have to do is kind of find the balance and find your groove and then get in it. So I recognized the limpets right away. And, you know, when we think about food, a lot of people have this romantic notion that they're going to go out with a bow and arrow and hunt. Um, and incidentally, there were a lot of guys that took bows and arrows with them on season one and nobody made a kill. Uh, that's that's active food procurement. And I'm, I'm a proponent of passive means such as trapping. You know, if I set. 30 traps and then i go to sleep they're working for me while i'm asleep i don't have to physically be there i can multitask and do other things and if just one of those traps hit then i get some food
1: you know i think that's an important concept uh and you've talked i've heard you speak before about energy uses usage versus how you replenish what is that balance for you
2: you know that's really you touched on the most important part of it, and, and it's actually a lesson that that I think we as a people, as a society, as a nation, need to really take to heart. Uh, you know how it's the custom. Sometimes on the ingredient list they, uh, of a package, for instance, in this case it was trail mix, there there were ten countries represented as I read through the list of ingredients. And so in my mind's eye, I'm thinking, wow, ten countries, ten different I'm envisioning these 10 different farms with 10 different groups of people doing their thing and the planes and the trains and the fuel involved to get these things to one central location. And then you have to produce a bag, and they're placed in the bag. And then the truck driver has to come and use energy in the form of his caloric energy, his time and the fuel to take it to the store. And then you have to use your energy in the form of your time, your caloric energy, your monetary energy to go there and and get this food. And so I think if we worked it up, if there were a way to quantify it, if we worked it out like a mathematical equation, I think we could agree that lots more energy went in to this product than the end state, which is calories, you know, to the user. And if a hunter-gatherer lived that way, we wouldn't be having this conversation, which tells me that our current uh, life patterns can't continue. I mean, we, I think we have the term unsustainable, I think it's overused and misused, but but we are unsustainable. Our current uh, life patterns are very unsustainable.
1: Well, you know that really to be true because we get our food from a store, and if that store is not continually resupplied every three or four days, they run out of stuff, and you go to the store and there's an empty shelf. So what do you do?
2: Yeah, that's it. Uh, we have to be able to feed ourselves. You know, historically Americans have been very self reliant. Uh, I've, I've spoken with people that lived through the Great Depression and remember it and from all over the nation, you know, different areas. And the difference between then and now is, is culture. You know, everybody then had, had a chicken yard and had gardens and, and knew how to subsist and how to improvise. They would make clothes out of feed sacks or whatever they could find. And sometimes, you know, they would uh, repurpose old tires and make them into shoes and things of that nature. And, and if you look at our social structure now, I don't think we would be as resilient nowadays as we were back at that time. So if it gets to a situation where you have to feed yourself, it's going to depend on time of year. You know, right now is, is really a bountiful time. All the plants are up. And there's so many edible and medicinal plants. We have the plant diversity in these mountains that's nearly equivalent to a tropical rainforest-type situation. Thousands of different plants so being able to use them and there's some very common yard what they call yard weeds that people are spraying roundup on and they're actually food and medicine and you know once you recognize that there, there really is an abundance around us and now in the wintertime that changes the plants aren't as available so in the wintertime my strategy would be to get near a body of water and that's where the food will be concentrated at and you're going to be leaning more on things like your ability to trap you know, be it from the water itself or animals going to and fro, you know, around the water, uh, and then also there are some inner tree barks that can be eaten, such as the inner bark of the white pine, is one of my staples. It has phosphorus and protein, oil, fats, all of that, and it's from a tree, so it's a nutritional powerhouse. It can be eaten raw or cooked.
1: So, just you just sort of piqued my curiosity because there's plenty of pine around here. Mm-hmm. Do you peel the bark off and then it's the inner layer of that bark? It's, is it a different color from the bark?
2: It is. It's actually white. Uh, when you peel the, the outer gray part of the bark off, then it starts to turn kind of a lime green would be the next color that you discover. And then there's a layer that's almost like a, like a beige. And then the, the inner bark itself is actually white. And then after that, it turns back to wood again so it's that, it's that layer that we're looking for. It should be white in color, and even if you didn't have a knife, you could just break a rock and use that to scrape down into the bark.
1: You know, that's kind of interesting because I have heard that you can actually feed a cer- certain types of tree limbs to horses, and they can survive very well. Have you heard that?
2: I have. I'm, I'm not really familiar with uh, too many things equestrian, but uh, yeah, that is true, and I know that Uh, Some of the donkeys, they say, are more resilient than than horses and things as far as their ability to subsist off of tree barks and things like that. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property. That cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom.
1: I get joy in everything. Everything. Everything.
2: Everything gonna be all right this morning.